So this morning we're going to be continuing in our series about the three last kings of Judah, and today we'll be covering, um, excuse me, covering Jehoiakim. And we're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 23, toward the end of that chapter, if you want to turn there. And I'm going to start out with a question this morning. How many people here, sometime in their lives, have ever trusted in the wrong person? Ended up turning turning um, around and betraying you somehow, or, or telling lies about you somehow, and there's, I could probably spend the next several hours telling you how many times that it's happened in my life. And we were talking about this recently at work, and it was coming across, and there was kind of two camps of, of people when it came to trusting people. Some people say, well, I don't just don't trust anybody. I trust nobody, nobody, not even my spouse. Don't even trust my spouse. And the other people over here were saying, well, by nature, I'm kind of a trusting person, but I notice I get hurt a lot and disappointed a lot in people. And somebody asked me, I said, well, I trust everybody. And they are like, really? You're like the most skeptical person here when it comes to just even patients telling you what's wrong with them and all that. You kind of really dig in and, and, and kind of call them on their, their, um, their stories that they're telling you. And I said, no, I trust everyone to be exactly who they really are. And everybody that we deal with are human beings. You'll notice that human beings always react differently to different things, especially when they're confronted. When you confront a weak person, you expect them to, to kind of back up or, or cower up and maybe even lie when they're confronted with their lies. If they're a private person, you'll expect them to do everything they can to maintain that image of, of whatever it is that they want to put out there before the world. If they're very timid and kind of scared and introverted, they'll crawl into their shell and sulk and not talk when the conversation becomes difficult. So again, I expect people to be human. That's how I trust people. And that comes with all the interesting reactions that comes from the huge variations of personalities that we see on a daily basis. And you know who else does this? Who trusts everybody to be who they are? Jesus. Jesus, it says in John's gospel, that he didn't put his trust in humans because he, was, um, because he knew what was inside all humans. And therefore, I know that if I'm a mess at times, that other people probably have a mess too, and you have to allow for that. However, when a person betrays you, it doesn't lessen that sting, does it? It doesn't lessen the pain. It doesn't lessen that when a person, a person you thought you could trust brazenly turns their back on you and hurts you. And that's one of the things we're going to explore today in the second of the last three kings of Judah. This king was named Jehoiakim, and he was the older brother of the previous king who would only reign for three months before he was deposed and, and taken off the throne. And that's where we're going to pick up the story today in 2 Kings chapter 23, starting in verse 36. It says, Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. His mother's name was Zebedah, the daughter of Pediah, and she was from Rumah. 
And he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as his predecessors had done. During Jehoiakim's reign, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, invaded the land. And Jehoiakim became his vassal for three years. But then he turned against Nebuchadnezzar and rebelled. The Lord sent Babylonian, Armenian, Moabite, and Ammonite raiders against him to destroy Judah in accordance with the word of the Lord proclaimed by his servant, the prophets. Surely these things happened to Judah according to the Lord's command in order to remove them from his presence because of the sins of Manasseh and all he had done, including the shedding of innocent blood. For he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord was not willing to forgive. Let's pray. Father God, as we go through this scripture today, we're going to see a betrayal. We're going to see what it was like when one person puts their faith in another and that other person doesn't come through. And I know that's going to be a, a sensitive topic for many of us. I know that, that it hurts sometimes when a person doesn't live up to your expectations of them. But I ask, Father, that you just place within us the same perseverance that you have with us when we don't live up to your expectations. And I ask, Father, you give us great discernment, particularly in these last days, to know who to trust. And, Father, for those who may feel that they have betrayed you in some way, I just want to bring encouragement this morning to know and say and proclaim that repentance is always possible, Lord. You are always willing to forgive. Lord God, be with us as we study your word this morning. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one of the things that you're going to see as you study the life of Jehoiakim is he was greatly influenced by the belief called pragmatism. Pragmatism believes whatever works, just do it. If it works, do it. Regardless of the moral or ethical ramifications that that action might produce. Pragmatism is often what causes people to act in ways that you never expect. Like breaking a confidence or betraying you in ways that really hurt. There's an extreme example of modern day pragmatism in those who believe in things like global climate change. Now I believe in uh, to a point in global climate change, I believe it is changing. I'm not sure if it's a natural variation of what's going on or if human beings have something to do with it. But I know that on the extreme fringes of this movement, there are those who hold the belief that the, world's the world has too many people in it. And I went and researched it this week, and this is the fringes of this movement, that they say the current 8 billion people that are on the planet are too many. They say we need to reduce that number to 500,000. That means we need to immediately get rid of 7,999,500,000 people. That those people just need to get out of the way. My answer to them is that, okay, you first. They didn't... They, <laughs> It's always better when it's somebody else um, taking the, uh, that dive, isn't it? Well, Jehoiakim was a pragmatist, kind of like a lot of these people are. And he believed that 
what he was doing at his time was the easiest thing to do in the given situation. Unfortunately, Jehoiakim, even though he was the son of Josiah, one of the best kings Judah ever had, he had no moral compass to guide these decisions. So the decisions were pretty much exclusively devoid of anything remotely resembling God's will for that time. In fact, he got so bad, the prophet Jeremiah sends him a written message giving him God's instructions for him, telling him exactly what he needs to do, and God will come through for the nation. And apparently it was a rather lengthy letter or scroll, because as he read it, Jehoiakim would have the pieces cut off and then thrown into a fire because that's all he regarded, the word of the Lord. Jehoiakim trusted more in his own ideas and wisdom more than he trusted in God's. And one of the main ways he did this was trusting in Egypt. In 2 Kings 23-35 it says, Jehoiakim paid Pharaoh Necho the silver and gold he demanded. In order to do so, he taxed the land and extracted the silver and gold from the people of Israel, or from the people in the land according to their assessments. And the Jewish historian Josephus gives us some background on why Jehoiakim paid off Pharaoh Necho. Necho had just disposed of his younger brother. You remember him from last week. He and took him off the throne and he placed Jehoiakim on the throne of Israel. Basically, Necho wanted a puppet king in Israel to buffer against Babylon should King Nebuchadnezzar decide to come west and, and conquer Egypt. This was a strategic thing on, on Necho's part to put a, a big nation between him and somebody who was trying to take over the world. But Judah was too weak to defend themselves against either nation. So Jehoiakim paid Egypt to be their mercenaries and heavily taxed his people to pay for it. Unfortunately, when the time came for Nico, Pharaoh Nico to, to offer his protection, he backed out. He would not come to their aid. And Pharaoh Nico and Egypt betrayed Jehoiakim and Judah in the worst possible way. You see, Jehoiakim had trusted Egypt, up to and including almost bankrupting his entire nation to buy his protection. And yet when he was needed, crickets. Nobody would answer that, the call for help. I remember when I used to do prison and jail ministry, there's this kind of myth about if you ever have to go to prison, that you're supposed to pick the biggest guy you think you can take and beat him up to get respect in prison. It's just kind of a, an old prison myth. The problem is, is that when you do that, that person probably is part of a clique or a gang, and then you end up having to fight that whole gang too. So it's better just to keep your head down. But that's where Jehoiakim is right now. He paid off the second biggest bully on the planet to protect him against the biggest bully on the planet. But now that bully, Nico, refuses to help Judah at all. And that shows us a most important point, And that is never trust in Egypt. 
Now, I'm not talking about the modern-day Egypt. I'm not talking about the, the Egypt that exists in the north side of Africa right now. I'm sure they have plenty of, of great people who live there. I'm talking about Egypt as a type in the Bible, always talking about the world, always talking about the world system, always talking about sin. And Egypt is a type of that. And all instead of going and trusting in Egypt, all Jehoiakim would have had to do is repent. All you would have had to do is, is go and call for a fast. Go and call to humble themselves before God. Because there was a promise that God gave the nation of Israel. And it was found in 2 Chronicles 7.14. We say it a lot around here when we're praying. Which says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. But Jehoiakim didn't want to have anything to do with God. He wanted to do it his way. Even if his way led to failure after failure after failure, he would not humble himself before God even after it was proved again and again and again how wrong he was. Do you know anybody like that? Do you know anybody that stubborn that they just keep doing it their way, even though it fails them and fails them and fails them? Albert Einstein is famously quoted as saying, the definition of idiocy is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Do you know anybody that saying fits? Anybody can hold up their hand and say, yeah, it's been me in my life sometimes. <laughs> if that's you, I point you back to 2 Chronicles 7.14 because there is a main word that you see there. And that main word is if. If means you have to make a choice to turn from your stubbornness and yield to God. Because if you don't, the more you stay in that sin, the more you stay in that rebellion, the more you keep shaking your fist at God saying, it's going to be my way, that callus that's around your heart gets thicker and thicker and thicker until sooner or later it will be totally numb to any of God's prodigies. The second thing we can learn from the life of Jehoiakim as he f is that he followed the worst of the worst in his moral life. In the scriptures this morning, we heard something called the sins of Manasseh. He goes, what are the sins of Manasseh? Well, you see them in 2 Kings chapter uh, 24 and uh, chapter 21. Well, Manasseh was a great-grandfather of Jehoiakim and probably the worst, most evil and sinful king that Judah ever had. These are just some of the, the horrible things that he did. One, he rebuilt the high places. The high places were places where people could go and worship God on their terms. They could mix pagan and um, worship God at the same, and try to worship God in a pagan way and all of that. They also re-erected all the altars to Baal, who was, a, who was the Canaanite um, little G-God. 
They built Asherah poles. Asherah pole is kind of like a totem pole, is what we would think of it as, but it had carved faces of, of this evil deity in it. And both Baal and Asherah had a lot of uh, sexual sin intermixed with the worship. And then the, with the product of that sin, if there was a pregnancy, that child would then be sacrificed to Asherah or Moloch, which was another god that they worshipped. He also worshipped astrology. Manasseh also built pagan altars in the temple of God, right next to the, the regular one. It said he sent his children through the fire, which means he had his own children sacrificed to these gods. He said he practiced witchcraft, he consulted mediums, and he killed the innocent to the point that the streets ran with blood. Good king, right? <laughs> no. Now Jehoiakim chose to follow him, even though he had a godly example of his father Josiah. But instead, he chose to follow his grandfathers into sin and evil. And what that says today and teaches us is that sin has a very powerful pull on our lives, especially on the young. And in spite of a boy who most likely was raised in a home where God was honored, he's Josiah's son. He saw everything his father did. He saw the correct way to live. And what it also shows about sin is that it's absolutely a malignant thing. Sin usually starts out small, like a small moving cancer. You know, all, all cancer in your body starts with one cell. And that cell starts sending out signals to other cells through your body, looking for a weak one to corrupt and change into another cancer cell. If you leave cancer unchecked, it will literally change every single cell into that, in that body into a cancer cell. But usually the organism it's infecting usually dies long before that happens. And so what is that, how does that match in with the scripture today? Well, an example from our time. In 2008, there was a lot of debate in our time about rights and recognitions given to LGBTQ, whatever the acronym is today. And it focused mostly around marriage, but also around general rights for people who are homosexual. Those who opposed gay marriage said, if we open the door to this, it's going to blow the door right off the hinges, and everybody is going to want to get in on getting married. Three people, two people, people marrying their cats, people marrying their dogs, all kinds of, of weird and, and things. And those on the LGBT side said that, oh, you're just being fear mongers and you're using a slippery slope argument to, 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 uh, to fight against this. Well, here we are today where we have furries or people who believe they're really animals and want legal rights as such to be recognized as an animal. And you think that, well, maybe that's something that happens in the city. Nope, saw it in public this last week. Somebody with a big old long tail dragging behind them. And it wasn't in the city. Not only that, we haven't even gone that far with just adults, but now we're drugging and mutilating children based on a pseudoscience called gender identification. It's not an actual science, by the way. It's a political science. 
And even our language is under attack with this movement. The definition of words that meant one thing in the English language for 500 years are being changed to suit the needs of a very few. Words like mother, father, male, female, are becoming a fluid thing instead of a hard and fast rule. And I just I, I bring this up not to demonize this group of people. They need Jesus just like any one of us. And the church has mistreated those people very and treated them very poorly in the past, and we need to repent of that. They are sinners saved by grace that need to be saved by grace like anyone else. And we shouldn't judge people because they sin differently than we do. We need to be reaching out to those people and loving on them as much as we can. But what it shows is how a nation can go from a Josiah, a man who loved God and ruled his people with justice and goodness, to less than three months after his death go right back to the worst evil imaginable. But it's not just a lesson for a nation. Even though we see these kind of things in our nation today, it's a lesson for you and me as well. So what secret sin do you hide from others? Do you have a sinful attraction or addiction that Jesus needs to bring healing to? Because if left unchecked, you begin that slippery slide down towards things you never thought possible. Cancer will win unless you cut it out. Unless you kill that cancer, it wins. We need to be like that with sin in our lives. Very slow progression. We've all heard about the frog in the pot of water. If you put a frog in a pot on an unlit burner on a stove with some room temperature water, the frog's going to be happy. It's going to sit there waiting for a fly to come across so you can have lunch. But when you turn that burner on very low and heat that water very slowly because a frog, being an amphibian and being cold-blooded, won't even notice the change. You can keep increasing the heat and increasing the heat slowly, and sooner or later, the frog won't even realize the danger until it's too late and he's cooked. The enemy of your souls is doing that in our society, and he does it to us personally. So if that's you today, if Satan has a hook in you that you're too ashamed to admit to anyone, there is hope and there is help for you. As God said, if my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and come and heal their land. That's a promise not only for a nation, but it's a promise for us. The last topic that we see, or last thing we see in Jehoiakim's life, is that in the midst of all this evil, God still offered them a chance to repent. Jeremiah 36, verse 1, start, says, In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write on it all the words I have spoken to you concerning Israel and Judah and all the other nations from the time I began speaking to you in the reign of Josiah until now. Perhaps when the people of Judah hear about every disaster I plan to inflict on them, they will each turn from their wicked ways, and then I will forgive their wickedness and sin. 
Now, if you look at this scripture and other scriptures, and in addition to the words of Josephus, the famous Hebrew historian, we know that God sends his word through his prophet to Jehoiakim, that he was on this dangerous path in trusting Egypt and not God. We mentioned earlier that Jehoiakim's response was to cut the pieces off as they were being read to him and throw them into a fire. Not only that, but he tried to put uh, Jeremiah to death because of the message. It just didn't fit with his plans, so it was easier to kill the messenger than to stop the message. And the irony is, is that apart from the king, the people of Judah at that time were already trying to be in fasting and prayer for God to deliver them. They were, some of them were following the words of the prophet. But Jehoiakim put a stop to that and therefore sealed the fate of his nation. You see, that's one of the big things when people have completely sold themselves out to sin, and we see it in our, in our nation, in our, our world right now, is it's not enough for them to doom their own souls. They have to drag other people down with them. We have a lot of Jehoiakims among us today. We see them on social media. They're the influencers, broadcasters, political commentators, politicians, local leaders, college professors. They're all around us. Yet God's word still stands true to us, both as a nation and as individuals. Again, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Again, that key word, if. If. If my people who are called by my name That promise is not only for our nation, but it is for you personally. If Jehoiakim would have humbled himself and prayed and turned from his wicked ways, he would be remembered much, much differently this morning. But he didn't. And it eventually cost him his freedom, him his life, and his nation eventually fell into captivity. We need the church in the United States to follow this scripture. To repent, to turn from wicked ways, and let God heal our land. We need to do it both on a personal level and as a corporate level. Because God promises he will forgive. He will touch us again. He will send revival if we beg for it. He'll heal us. He'll heal our land. But we have to make that choice to be the people who will do it. Because as much as, as we decry the sin that's going out in the world, that sin has always been in the world. God judges based on the actions of the church. It is time for judgment to begin with the house of God. Let's be a people that follow after and, and step into that if word. 
that we are not saying if, we are saying we will. We have made the choice to spend that time with God, to spend that time in his word, to spend that time on our knees, praying for ourselves, praying for our families, praying for our neighbors, praying for our city, our state, our nation. Let's see Jesus move again in our time. Let's see another revival happen. Instead of America falling because of its sin, Maybe America won't be mentioned in the Bible because the whole thing was raptured because of revival. That's what I want to see.